it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Shannon Bream. New fears today of a broader conflict in the Middle East. Israeli warplanes overnight striking targets in Gaza, Syria, and the West Bank. President Netanyahu convening his cabinet late last night to discuss what an Israeli military spokesman calls the next stages of the war. Israeli strikes targeting Hamas turned building after building in Gaza to rubble. As tens of thousands of Israeli troops gather just outside the border and the world awaits a possible ground invasion. Meanwhile, to the north, increasing tensions for Israel with Hezbollah fighters in Lebanon. Here at home, thousands of pro-Palestinian protesters calling for a ceasefire clash with police in America's biggest city. We'll talk with the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith. And I'm going to send to Congress an urgent budget request. The White House calling on Congress to provide funding not only for Israel, but also for Ukraine. Hamas and Putin represent different threats, but they share this in common. They both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy. The call for action faces an uphill battle as Republican support for funding the Ukraine war ebbs and the House remains paralyzed without a speaker. I like the way it used to be where we would get together and try to do the right thing for our country and for our allies. We're one-on-one with Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Then... We need to come together and figure out who our speaker is going to be. After failing to rally enough support three times, the GOP audibles again, ditching the latest nominee for House Speaker. It's as swampy as swamp gets, and Jim Jordan deserved better than that. Republicans are returning to square one, with multiple contenders saying they're in as the lower chamber nears three weeks in limbo. We'll ask our Sunday panel who the House GOP may tap next, all right now on Fox News Sunday. Hello from Fox News in Washington. It has been more than two weeks since Hamas's shocking attack on Israel. The Israeli Defense Force continues to amass troops in the south ahead of an anticipated ground invasion of Gaza. A bit of good news this week. Hamas released two American hostages and international humanitarian aid has begun to flow into Gaza through a passage in Egypt. These are live pictures from the Rafah boarding crossing from Egypt into Gaza. But clashes and exchange of fire to the north between Israel and Hezbollah militants across the Lebanon border has many concerned about a two-front conflict. We begin with Trey Yanks live in southern Israel with the latest on the ground. Hello, Trey. Shannon, good morning. Anticipation is growing ahead of Israel's looming ground offensive into the Gaza Strip. The Israelis say they are increasing airstrikes across the enclave in preparation for what is expected to be months of fighting. Israel's 16-day air campaign against Gaza has destroyed infrastructure and killed more than 4,600 Gazans, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry. Inside Israel, the death toll stands at more than 1,400 people following that brutal massacre on October 7th. Now, Fox News spoke with the Golani brigades in the southern part of this country to talk about how they are preparing for battle. I have to protect my people, the people I love, and I know that this Hamas can danger them after what they did here, after they, what they did to citizens, to innocent citizens that did nothing to them. 
Despite Israeli efforts, factions inside Gaza have maintained the ability to fire on southern and central Israel, targeting central Israel with rockets and mortars here near to the border. Take a look. 13 Palestinians were killed. We need to go because there could be mortar fire here. Just stay with me. Get in. That's mortar. Get in. Get cover. Everyone in. Listen to our camera. So what you heard there, the whistle of, uh, of incoming mortar fire. So that, those were indeed mortars that were fired at this position. And we are so close to the Gaza border, you have about 10 seconds to get to cover. Overnight, Israel conducted a rare airstrike against Palestinians in the West Bank, another indication this war is expanding to new fronts. Shannon? Yeah, and Trey, I know there's a worry that it would expand to the northern front. What can you tell us about what's going on with Hezbollah and the Lebanon area? The Lebanese militant group Hezbollah has continued to fire rockets and small arms into northern Israel, today launching anti-tank guided missiles into the country. The Israelis have started to respond immediately to that fire with both airstrikes and artillery units along the border. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu meeting with troops today, saying to Hezbollah, if they go to war with Israel, it would bring unimaginable damage to the group and Lebanon. Shannon. All right, Trey Yings reporting around the clock force from Israel. Thank you so much, Trey. Joining us now, retired four-star general and Fox News senior strategic analyst, Jack Keane. General, great to have you back with oh, us. Great to be here. So I want to start with something overnight we got from the Defense Secretary, Austin, talking about new assets moving into the region, the Eisenhower Strike Group. He specifically references escalations by Iran and its proxy forces. I mean, obviously, Hezbollah, Hamas among that. What are the greatest threats you see now? Well, certainly the number one threat is Hezbollah. I mean, there are... They're a paramilitary force. They have conventional capability. They have 130,000-plus rockets and missiles that the Iranians have given them. They got them from no place else, and these are much more advanced, more, more precision, more lethality, and actually uh, more accuracy in terms of the, the range of these weapons and what they, what they can do on the ground. So, yes, they have a significant capability. Israelis have handled them before but struggled with it back in 2006. What we would see here is a, a very heavy rocket and missile attack that can range all of the major cities. We've never seen it on a scale that they actually have. Now, when you look at what's actually happening on the ground with Hezbollah, they have not evacuated any of their southern positions, which they likely would have done with their people. They have not gone to any kind of full mobilization yet, which they would, they would likely do. But the only thing that is relevant here, and so our viewers understand, it's Iran. They will make this decision whether they go or not. And that's likely has something to do with how things go in Gaza with the Israelis and what the perception is in the international community as well. It's going to be Iran's decisions, just as the Hamas attack on Israel was Iran's decision. I want to put up a, a map of the region there because there are so many other countries that we're talking with, we're trying to influence, trying to stop this from spreading more broadly in the region. Um, how are we doing on that point? Because, as you said, Iran, many people believe, is calling the shots, but we have other actors there who can influence what's happening in the region. Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, what the United States is doing, first, give the president credit for the speech uh, the other night, uh, something I think when it comes to Ukraine should have been done a year ago, but it's here now. Uh, secondly, certainly moving the military capability into the region that you're referencing is, is very critical. 
capability is part of deterrence. The adversary sees the capability and they know it's powerful and they know it would harm them. The second thing that's crucial with deterrence is are you willing to use it? And that is where our adversaries have had doubts about the United States recently. So I'm hoping that privately we are telling and poking a finger figuratively in the chest of the Iranians and saying, don't make this move because we are dead serious that we will use this capability against your proxies and possibly against you yourself. I'll leave the target selection up to the administration and the Pentagon. But that is what deterrence is all about. It's not just enough to move the capability that's there. Your adversary's got to believe you're going to use it. I want to ask you quickly, too, because you're just back from Ukraine. Polls show us that people growing weary here, at least about the financial support, not knowing what the finish line is. What can you tell us about what's happening there on the ground? Well, first of all, you've got to realize all this is connected, what's happening. The United States is facing global security challenges we haven't seen since World War II, Shannon. I mean, look at this. We have three geographic areas, vital national interest, Europe, China, uh, China and the Indo-Pacific region, and also the Middle East. War has broken out in two of those areas. And in the third area, China, he's threatening it. This is not happening by accident. They perceive that we don't have the capability to deter them anymore, that we've lost some political will. And he will reflecting this loss of political will in Ukraine. We not only have to support Ukraine, Ukraine's got to win this war. It's related to these other two regions. The world is becoming a more dangerous place. And the United States' weakness is what they perceive, whether it's real or not, it's irrelevant. They perceive it. We've got to win that war in Ukraine. We cannot have Russia win that war. If that happens, China wins and so do the Iranians. And what does it do? It encourages them. It emboldens them. We all see the aggression that has increased in the last couple of years. It's not by accident. It's their perception that they have one opportunity, which is what the Germans, the Japanese, and the Italians thought in World War II, and two, the perception of weakness. And it's here. It's very dangerous. Uh, General, thank you for always giving us some of your insights and expertise. Yeah, great talking to you, Shannon. All right. I sat down this week, by the way, with the Senate's top Republican, who's being called the only GOP negotiator by some on the Hill. As the House remains without a speaker, we talked about all these things. I asked Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell about his health in the midst of all these challenges. He says he's doing great and has a clean bill of health. So we dove into these foreign policy conversations. I think we're confronted with a major international situation. If you go back to the fall of the Berlin Wall, it was widely said that we went into a holiday with history. We had a couple of conflicts related to terrorism in Afghanistan and in Iraq, but no big power competition. Fast forward to today, we still have the terrorist threat challenge, which the Israelis are trying to deal with. And we have big power competition from China, Russia. So in many ways, the world is more endangered today than it has been in my lifetime. So um, the question is, is America going to lead? I think the, uh, the Biden administration sent the wrong signal when they had the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan. I think that was like giving a green light to Putin to go into Ukraine. And we see that Iran, the principal sponsor of terrorism, sending drones to the Russians and attacking Hezbollah, uh, in this particular situation, uh, uh, Hamas, uh, 
attacking the Israelis with drones. So it's all connected. That you can't separate out one part of it and say, oh, we're only going to deal with this. It's all connected. So the White House is now coming forward with a $105 billion request, and they are linking all these things, Israel, Ukraine, Taiwan, the southern border. A number of your GOP colleagues object to that. But let's start with Senator Rand Paul. He says this. Our deficit this year will exceed $1.5 trillion. Borrowing money from China to send it to Ukraine makes no sense. So what is your answer to that, this idea of taking money from somebody who doesn't wish us the best in all circumstances in order to pay for Ukraine? Well, he's certainly right that the, the deficit is entirely too big, and it frankly was expanded during the previous administration as well. So I think neither side has done a very good job of dealing with the deficit. However, you have to respond to conditions that actually exist that are a threat to the United States. The Iranians are a threat to us as well. And so this is an emergency. It's an emergency that we step up and deal with this axis of evil, China, Russia, Iran, because it's an immediate threat to the United States. And so We'll see what the supplemental looks like. We're going to take a good, hard look at it. And um, I and most of my members believe we need something credible on the border as well. I mean, if we're going to challenge, uh, accept the financial responsibility of helping our allies, we certainly want to do something to help ourselves. And so we'll give this supplemental request a serious look probably recommend some changes as well. Well, some critics say they don't want everything bundled because they do think that those are separate crises. Josh Hawley, Rick Scott both say they don't support that idea. Here's something that came from Senator J.D. Vance after the president's remarks. He said this. I think what the president did is completely disgraceful. If he wants to sell the American people on $60 billion more to Ukraine, he shouldn't use dead Israeli children to do it. It was disgusting. Now, Senator Vance told me he thinks the president should have to come and make the argument on each of these separate priorities, and no one, especially not Republicans, should be giving him cover on something like explaining to us what the goals are in Ukraine and how long that's going to last. Well, there are some differences of opinion among Republican senators about this. I don't view it's about whether we give Biden credit or not. This is a question of whether it's a serious threat to the United States. Uh, if, if the Russians aren't defeated, they'll go into a NATO, NATO country next. And the notion that somehow our Asian allies are unconcerned about Ukraine is completely wrong. The, the, the prime minister of Japan said, if you want to send President Xi a message, beat the Russians in Ukraine. The South Koreans, the Japanese, Taiwanese are all interested in what's happening over in Ukraine, because they know President Xi is watching that. President Xi rec uh, recently declared that they had an endless friendship with the Russians. What more do you need to know about how relevant Ukraine is to Asia and to the Middle East? So Putin is over there this week in Beijing, been meeting with Xi. How worried are you about them looking from the outside and watching things like Axios reporting that 
artillery shells that we had designated for Ukraine are now having to be diverted to Israel. Taiwan has millions of dollars worth of orders for equipment and artillery that we've been unable to fulfill for them. What do you make of what China must be thinking watching all of that? Yeah, one of the best things about this from a U.S. point of view is when we give older equipment to the Ukrainians, for example, we are rebuilding our industrial base in this country. There are jobs being created by the help that we're providing Ukraine in 38 different states and rebuilding our industrial complex for the more serious big power threat in Asia. So um, the, the notion that, that's, that our assistance for Ukraine is not helpful to us is simply not factual. Um, we need to get more serious about Iran. Uh, this administration flirted with Iran on the nuclear deal again. Senator Cotton and I've joined him to have a bill to freeze the $6 billion that was supposed to be sent uh, to the Iranians related to the hostage release. They shouldn't get a penny of it, and it ought to be law, not just left up to the discretion of the president. So the main point I'm trying to make here is that you can't just take out part of this. It's an overall effort by the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians to go after the free world. And the Israelis are feeling the, the pinch at the moment more than anyone else. And we, we need to stick with them because what's going to happen here very quickly. And by the way, the Chinese made no reference to Israeli uh, problems. They just talked about the Hamas. We know which side they're on, and uh, we, we need to view this as a worldwide problem, is my point. Do you think, because many Americans want the government to speak as one voice, where they can, um, the Senate, the White House, on issues of import like Iran, I mean, where we have a clearly defined position or relationship with them. Do you think this White House has been a good partner with the Senate, with Republicans, when it comes to issues of foreign policy? Well, look, I, I'm generally supportive of the president's approach here and viewing this as a worldwide problem. Uh, on the domestic side, I, I can't think of a single thing I support the Biden administration ha, ha, has done. Um, they are, for example, the creator of 40-year inflation as a result of the massive spending they engaged in in the last Congress. So generally speaking, I think this has been a left-wing administration that I don't support. However, when it comes to foreign policy and defense, I like the way it used to be, where we would get together and try to do the right thing for our country and for our allies. Uh, NATO, for example, is the most successful military alliance in world history, and they are threatened by what's happening in Ukraine. Also, the argument you might have heard is that the Europeans are not doing enough. Um, you might be interested to know they've done about $90 billion, um, and they are housing lots of refugees who escaped from the war. Um, we're providing more military, but they're providing more humanitarian and taking care of, of uh, people who escaped 
from Ukraine doing this. So I think that NATO countries are by and large carrying their load. And some of these countries, these smaller countries, are spending more as a percentage of gross domestic product on helping the Ukrainians than we are. To this point where there's sort of a collision of the of the foreign policy and a domestic issue here, I want to ask you about Senator Menendez. The superseding indictment now in his case says he essentially, um, the allegations are that he did things to benefit Egypt in exchange for things of value or promises of things of value and didn't register as a foreign agent. That's quite an allegation to make against a sitting senator. Do you think he should resign? Should due process play out in the courts? What do you make of the allegations? Well, I think that's something Senator Schumer and the Democrats have to decide how to deal with. Um, and I'm not going to give him advice about how to deal with it. Let me just say this. I'm glad he's not a Republican. Well, you've got some Republican issues over on the House side. Any advice for those folks over there as they try to figure this out? I, I hope they can get a speaker sometime soon because it, it does send, a, I think, a poor message to our allies and our enemies around the world. And we also have work to do. We have appropriation bills to pass. We have a supplemental to deal with. So I'm pulling for them to finally wrap this up sometime soon. Leader, we thank you for your time. Thank Good you. to see you. So amidst all those issues, thousands of people now rallying and demonstrating in favor of a state of Palestine. That's all over the country. They're protesting Israel's actions in Gaza as well. We'll bring in Congressman Adam Smith to react to the nationwide protests next. Fox News Sunday is brought to you by Pacific Life. Over 150 years of strength and stability. Imagine your future with confidence. It's another ultimate from the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. President Biden announced a humanitarian aid deal for Gaza this week, and that aid has now started to flow in via Egypt this weekend. Now, skeptics worry it's just a matter of time until that aid meant to help suffering civilians ends up in the hands of Hamas or its sympathizers. Joining me now to discuss the situation in the Middle East, Democratic Congressman Adam Smith of Washington State. He's the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. Uh, Welcome back, Congressman. Good to have you. Thanks. Appreciate the chance. So let's start with that aid. One of your colleagues over in the House, um, GOP Congressman Brian Mast, a veteran, says that this week the only way to make sure that this aid doesn't end up in the hands of terrorists is to just not send it. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton says this on X. He says about the aid to Gaza, at the very least, President Biden should have demanded Hamas release every hostage before giving them a dollar. So should we have used more leverage with this to get people back? And how worried are you about it falling into the wrong hands? Look, there is no question that there are risks in sending the aid in, risks that Hamas will take advantage of it. But I would ask, you know, anyone who's critical of this, should it really be our plan to starve two million Palestinians in Gaza? I, I think there's considerable risk in doing that as well. Look, Israel has to win the broader fight against Hamas. It is a military campaign. Anyone who says there's no military solution to this, I think the military is a huge part of it. But you also have to be able to win over the broader public and make sure the war doesn't spread. And if you don't send humanitarian aid into the Palestinians, what is going to happen to the two million civilians in Gaza? 
they're going to die is what's going to happen. So getting humanitarian assistance in so that this doesn't turn into collective punishment and something that's going to inflame the world is a crucial part of Israel being able to actually defeat Hamas. And I wish more people understood that. So as all of this is playing out, the White House is sending over a $106 billion supplemental request, lumping a lot of these things together, Ukraine, Israel, the border, Taiwan. Um, there were a number of senators who put together a, a letter to leadership this week saying they don't think those should be tied together, um, especially on top of the $113 billion that Congress has already allocated for Ukraine. They say this, these are two separate conflicts. It is wrong to leverage support of aid to Israel in an attempt to get additional aid for Ukraine across the finish line. It would be irresponsible and we should not risk a government shutdown by bundling these priorities together. Would you be for separating these, having the administration make the separate arguments, passing them separately, if it looks like aid to Israel be, will be slowed down potentially by keeping them together? Yeah, well, I think it's three separate points I want to make here. First of all, we have supplemental spending packages at the end of most years, and there's always more than one issue. Sometimes disaster relief is linked with the border. Sometimes there's been a disaster overseas. And, and frequently those things are lumped together depending how legislatively it plays out, first of all. Second of all, you know, the Senate can handle it however they want to handle it, and so can the House. And if there's a way, if there's a path forward with a separate package, that's fine. We can have that discussion. Third, certainly the issues are separate, but they are also connected in the way that President Biden said and the way in which Senator McConnell just agreed. Look, Russia, China, Iran, and I would throw in North Korea and terrorist groups like Hamas have a very clear mission. And that mission is to destroy the existing um, rules-based international order and to weaken the U.S. and our allies. And they are working together. Iran is sending weapons to Russia. They're part of that fight. Russia is helping Iran. So it's wrong to say that these things are not connected. Yes, they, they have separate aspects to them. And if the Senate wants to handle them separately, that's fine. But I don't think we should kid ourselves about how closely connected Iran, Russia, China, North Korea, and groups like Hamas are. Well, the supplemental also has this breakout money for the border, and that's a growing concern about whether those bad actors you all named may use our porous border to come here and carry out attacks within the U.S. Um, one analysis of the supplemental says there's four times as much money for Ukraine and its border as there is for our border. Here are some recent numbers. We just got the latest monthly uh, encounter numbers on our southern border. Nearly 270,000. That is a record high for the fiscal year. We're more, that, uh, more than 2.4 million. That's also the highest number ever. And for the last three years, that record has been broken under the Biden administration. This fiscal year also marks the highest number of arrests at the southern border for people who are connected to a terror watch list. So with all the things you've laid out and these numbers here, how worried are you about a bad actor using our border? Uh, the fact that it's completely, by many assessments on both sides of the aisle, um, out of control to harm us here in the U.S.? Well, there's no question we have a crisis on the border. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And yes, I think we need to be focused on protecting that. And terrorism is certainly one risk. And the larger risk is the humanitarian crisis and the challenge of having so many people fleeing uh, Latin America and into the U.S. But look, the real problem is the migration problem. To some degree, it's the same problem uh, that Europe's having. We have so many crises all over the world. 
Certainly there have been a number of Ukrainian refugees. Senator McConnell mentioned what Europe is having to do to accommodate the millions of people pouring out of Ukraine. We're having to accommodate you know, millions of people pouring out of Venezuela. I mean, the source of this conflict is all of the people fleeing um, violence, fleeing poverty in Latin America. So a comprehensive approach is definitely needed. So, yes, without question, the border is part of this equation. Well, and you have people showing up at the border and saying, I'm coming here because my understanding is that I can stay here. I can come across and I can go to cities like Chicago, New York, other places that now say that they're absolutely overwhelmed and can't take any more people. Yeah, but again, understand the problem here. The problem is because these people can't stay in the countries that they're, they're from. And that instability is driving a migration process across the globe. Part of it is we've got to look at you know, what can we do to increase stability. And, and I'll go ahead and say something controversial here for Fox. We've placed massive sanctions on Venezuela. And let me be clear. The Venezuelan economy was in the toilet long before we did that because of Chavez and because of Maduro. But I think we've got to ask ourselves, is an aggressive posture of sanctions that is helping at least to drive millions of people out of Venezuela, is that really in the best interest of U.S. security? I think we have to re-examine policies like that as well. But what about the issue that we're having people show up at the border who are also from China, from Iran? I mean, that's not somebody yeah. that you don't walk to the, to the southern border from places like that. Right. Well, I mean, these are people who are migrating to Latin America and then working their way up from there. Um, yeah, look, I mean, the global instability is impacting a lot of countries in a lot of places. So, yes, I think that has to be part of what we're looking at also. Okay, I want to ask about um, these proxy attacks we've been talking about in the Middle East. Um, there are some talking very tough. I mean, Senator Lindsey Graham, he's a vet. He's very hawkish. He said, we have to send a warning to Iran that if they ramp up these attacks, if they start killing hostages, any number of things, that we may actually strike on Iranian soil, taking out oil infrastructure, their industry, that kind of thing. Is there any scenario for you in which you see U.S. military assets being used, um, even from the skies, with respect to Iran? Well, up front, there's a couple of pieces to this. One, we have to have a strong deterrent presence. And, and President Biden responded quickly to move forces to the region and to make sure that, first of all, our assets in Syria and Iraq in particular are protected. And then we have that show of force that we're in a position to deter Iran. That is crucial. But the second piece of this that's really important that a number of people have emphasized, it is not good for Israel, it's not good for U.S., and it's not good for the world if this conflict spreads. Mm -hmm. We've got Hezbollah in Lebanon. We've got Shia militias in Syria and elsewhere. We've got Iran. We've got the, the um, instability on the West Bank. If this spreads, Israel is in a heck of a lot of trouble. So, no, I wouldn't be anxious about striking into Iran and starting a war with Iran as we're going forward. I mean, that is, would place Israel in an incredibly perilous situation and would also risk further expansion of the war in a way that is harmful to the U.S. and to the world at large. Well, Congressman, um, as we've talked about before, you've been to many of these places and been there on the ground. You've got firsthand experience. So thank you for coming to share your viewpoint with us. Always good to see you. Thanks, Shannon. Appreciate the chance. All right. The House, by the way, is soon going to mark three weeks without a speaker as Republicans struggle to unite behind a new leader. And there is a new twist today. We'll discuss the path forward for the party and the top contenders with former House Speaker Newt Gingrich. And we'll ask the Sunday panel whether some Republicans could actually join with Democrats in some kind of temporary power sharing deal. That's next. When people call and they say they've tried... It's been nearly three weeks since Kevin McCarthy was ousted as Speaker of the House, and Republicans appear no closer to selecting his replacement. 
The House GOP conference voted to drop Jim Jordan on Friday. They're going to start over at Square Run tomorrow. Joining me now to game out the odds is former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. Um, all right, good to see you, sir. What is your advice uh, as Republicans are increasingly taking heat on all sides about looking like they can't govern, even themselves? Well, right now they can't govern, and I think that the eight people who betrayed the conference and joined the Democrats to defeat 96% of the conference unleashed furies that I don't think they'd even dreamed of because they gave every person the right to be equally destructive and equally angry, uh, and now it's a mess. Um, just a couple of observations. First, they should have stayed in. When they get back here, they should stay in. They should go into a conference, not come out, uh, bring food in, and stay there. A very simple test. Can you get 217 votes? They shouldn't bring anybody out until they have 217. And second, that 217 has to be committed not just to elect a speaker, but to stick together for the next five or six months. they got big decisions coming down the road. There's a very real danger that they'll elect somebody in three or four or five weeks from now. Uh, you're going to have a group of people blow up and decide to go back into the same mess. So they need to pick somebody to get stability. I, I frankly wish that they, and Calista and I have talked about this, I wish they had uh, a woman candidate of all the candidates they've got running, you know, so, somebody like, um, Elise Stefanik or Beth Van Dyne, uh, who had been a mayor of a city before becoming a congressman. I, I think in some ways, given the level of rowdiness and the level of juvenile behavior, uh, it's conceivable that a female speaker uh, would be more effective in actually getting them all to get together and stick together. Mm. That's the key. They have to learn to stick together. Well, it may get to that point. We've got seven now. Um, none of the ones that you mentioned are the potential female contenders there. But do you think any of the ones who are in, or if there's another name you can think of on the Hill, can actually get to 217? Because it seems to be if the, if the person's too conservative, you're going to lose the moderates. If they are too, you know, uh, somebody that's looking like, like Kevin McCarthy did, like that he's going to work with Democrats on things and, and he's too far to the middle, you've got the extreme who say, I'm a no vote right. forever and ever. Look, I, I would do a very simple test. Get them all in the same room, as I said earlier. Bring food in. Have an occasional bathroom break. Uh, and uh, as, if it lasts long enough, uh, as Byron Daniels said, you know, have, have a, an hour off to go shower. But otherwise, stay together uh, and keep meeting and keep talking. And I'd work backwards. I would do a whip check and say, uh, who could possibly get 217? I don't care who they are. They don't have to be candidates right now. That could be the, the least, the most surprising person. If they can get 217 and they can keep 217, make them speaker. Uh, they've tried the other technique, which is to find a personality, have them get a majority of the conference, walk onto the floor of the House and get beat. Well, the only number that matters here is 217. If you can't get it and keep it, remember, it's not just one day. If you can't keep it through the end of this year and make very tough decisions, and have the conference say, you know, I don't necessarily like all of them, but it's what we have to do to govern. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a book called March to the Majority where we described how we created a majority after 40 years, how we got it reelected for the first time since 1928, how we balanced the budget for four straight years, the only time in your lifetime. There are a lot of lessons these guys have to learn, and right now they're so angry and they're so dysfunctional, they can't just play rope-a-dope. They've got to start from, start from victory. Who can get 217? That's the person who ought to be speaker. And trying to start from let me pick my favorite and see if they can then get 217. You could be here for weeks. The, the record in 1856 
was two months and 103 ballots. I would urge the House Republicans not to try to break that record. Well, uh, if they're trapped in there with their food and limited potty breaks, then maybe they will have time to read your book and consider that as well. Um, former Speaker Newt Gingrich, thank you thank for you. dropping in. All right, time now for our Sunday group, The Hill National Political Reporter, Julia Manchester, Juan Williams, Fox News Senior Political Analyst, former Bush White House Advisor Carl Rove, and Emily Campagno, co-host of Outnumbered on the Fox News Channel. Okay, welcome, everyone. You're going to solve this, the four of you. <laughs> <laughs> this speaker situation, um, I want to read something from The Wall Street Journal, an opinion piece by Kim Strassel talking about this whole thing. Um, she calls them the mercenary caucus, the ones who are controlling the GOP. She says, while the vast majority of the GOP conference remains focused on what's best for party and country, a small but significant number of mercenary members intend to glory in their power. Carl, how do you get to 217 with that in the calculus? Damned hard. Um, look, this is, this is going to be very difficult because, uh, as you heard from the former speaker, there's a lot of anger, there's a lot of distrust, uh, and they, I think he's right. They need to get together in a room. It's going to be like a locker room at halftime in an important game. And are they going to be able to come together as a team and say, you know what, we may not agree on each and every issue. We may not agree upon each and every vote, but we have somebody whom we think can lead us and we'll get behind them regardless of whether or not they agree 100 percent with us. We have had two instances now or more of where a small group started with the Gang of Eight, the Matt Gates group. You've got to be with us 100 percent of the time. We, the eight, get to dictate to the other 208. And that's not the way it goes. Well, and there are worries for the GOP that they are squandering some good things that are going on for the House GOP. Um, look at this NBC News poll. It said the latest polling shows that Republicans have a 21-point advantage on which political party better handles the economy. 49% of registered voters for the GOP, 28% for the Democratic Party. The largest lead Republicans have held on this question in our polling dating back to 1991. Emily, are they losing good faith with the American public who listen on what they say is the most important issue of the economy? They give credit to the GOP. That's the exact argument that the American people have. That's right. Because in addition to that, we have the Democrats have the smallest advantage, just two points, into what party Americans trust the most with the middle class since 1989. And yet, to flesh out Kim's argument, every representative is somehow royalty. And that flies in the face as well with Gates' initial argument as he blew up the House, which was, well, it's supposed to put an end to the chaos. We have more of that right now. What has changed at all? And every single representative is now sort of adding in, well, for example, New York, Long Island's unique tax needs. Mm -hmm. Everyone is putting themselves above the caucus. And when you throw it against that landscape, we had that edge. We had the ear of the American people and the faith, the trust for just that moment. No unity pledge is going to unite everyone. I, I think I have a, a sort of negative view at this moment because wasn't their initial oath supposed to do that, right? They were supposed to serve and represent the constituents. And when the constituents reflect that faith, this now, by the way, is the contrast that Biden has been drawing since his visit to Israel, where he says, look what's going on in the House. These guys can't get their act together no matter who has faith in them. Look at me. Meanwhile, I'm boots on ground. I'm actually making strides yet to see if that's effective. But for this moment, it's a good argument. Well, and that uh, takes me back to White House spokesperson Andrew Bates, who is very much talking about those exact things. He says that they have to stop their chaotic infighting and trying to out extreme each other because, look, President Biden is actually governing and, and one not that they take joy in this because the country is not working right now, but you're going to tap into the advantage to say, look, these guys are a mess, but I'm actually over here doing something. Well, when you have Putin and Z meeting and trying to, you know, take over the world and you have President Biden engaged in fighting against that, then 
I think what's going on on Capitol Hill, I think all the Trump trials, I think it all becomes a sideshow. It's not the main event. And right now, you know, from my perspective, what you have going on is a broken political party. And America really does need two major political parties to debate issues. But what you have here is self-promoters engaged in schoolyard bullying and feuds. And as a result, you have a problem that's a little bit not atypical for Washington. Usually it's, oh, Juan thinks this, Carl thinks that, let them fight, and then they'll compromise. But here you have a situation where it's one party fighting kind of an intramural feud. It's up to Republicans to solve this. I mean, I guess they could say, you know what, we'll give a few votes to Hakeem Jeffers and let him. I mean, they right? play around enough. Well, that's what I mean. But, but we need America, when I say we, Americans need a working Congress. They do. All right, um, Julia, we have all kinds of names in the mix here, um, at least seven that we know of, and I think we can put them up on the screen, who've said, like, give me a shot to do this. Who do you think at this point, when they have this candidate forum tomorrow to discuss, uh, can anybody of, of this group? Pull out and get the 217. It's really difficult to say. You know, I think someone like Tom Emmer, for example, who is former chairman of the National Republican Congressional Campaign Committee, he's someone who definitely has that establishment pull with much of the conference and has a lot of, um, you know, ties and such. However, when you look at these, um, you know, this minority of Republicans who are sort of holding everything up, that makes it difficult for someone like Tom Emmer to get through. So it's really difficult to see at this point who gets over this cliff because I don't think anyone can get to 217. And I think there's just such strong animus on both sides of this or the multiple sides of this that just no one can get over that. Well, um, and we'll see if they would even discuss any kind of power sharing agreement. I think it's a big no for a lot of folks out there. But in the moment, it is gridlock. All right, panel, don't go far. Much more to discuss, uh, including this tough new polling painting a very bleak reelection picture for President Biden. But could his handling of the war in Israel turn things around? We'll debate next. What you're seeing and losing very, very badly to all of us in the polls. He's losing badly. Well, former President Donald Trump reacting to recent polling, indicating that he would beat current President Joe Biden in a head-to-head matchup. We're back now with a panel to talk about these. All right, let's talk about this first one from CNBC uh, on their economic survey. It says, find support for President Joe Biden at nearly all-time lows and that he would lose by four points to former President Donald Trump in a head-to-head race. I mean, Juan, this is bad news for them. There are also swing state polls that show the same thing, that in a head-to-head matchup, it doesn't look good. But again, that's if only the two of them are in. Right. And also, I think it's October 2023, not October 2024. <laughs> You'd be more worried then. Oh, yeah. I, look, I think we're at the juncture where voters are just starting to pay serious attention in terms of the uh, presidential race. And, you know, to me, when I look at those polls, Shannon, I see that both teams are low 40s. Those are base votes. I don't think they're votes that indicate how swing voters who will determine mm-hmm. the outcome next year uh, are going to go. And if I was saying, oh, which position would you rather be in? I would say, hmm, how can anyone look past what we discussed in the first panel, look at the chaos on Capitol Hill and say, oh, yeah, it'd be a great idea to put Republicans in charge. (laughs) I don't think so. I think it's right now, it's more like a situation where you say, hmm, I think Ronald Reagan, I think Bill Clinton, I think Barack Obama were all behind at this point and went on to win Mm -hmm. 
a general election. And I think you have to take that long view as Americans begin to tune into presidential politics. A lot of head shaking over there by Carl. Yeah, look, uh, it is going to be a close election. But President Biden starts with a burden that no other presidential candidate has ever had. CNN, CNN, mm -hmm. August 31st. 73% believe that his age will ne it has negatively affected his physical and mental competence. 76% believe his age has affected his ability to serve out a second term. 28% say he inspires confidence. 26% say he has the stamina and sharpness to be president. And we've seen this not in just one poll. We've seen it in dozens of polls. Three-quarters of the American people think he's too old, including 69% of Democrats. Now, he can go out there and speak, but he's not going to make himself younger. He's not going to get more cogent. He's not going to get more articulate. He's not going to look more energetic. And that's a problem for the Democrats. But they they Carl, better wake up and recognize is, it. If he looks, as he did this past week, giving a oh. brilliant speech... Out traveling to Israel, going into a war zone, putting himself at risk for the good of America and the world, his age becomes secondary. It's like, oh, no, what? This is an experienced man, no, connections no. with foreign wait, wait. leaders, no, look, look, and okay, able do to we have lead an, America at a critical point. Do we have an EMS unit arrive uh, around? Because I'm going to agree mildly with, with, <laughs> oh. with, with, with my friend, <laughs> which was it was a good speech. But one speech does not okay. turn these numbers around. You, this is the reality the American people are dealing with. They like that his speechwriter put together a good speech, but he looked old in that. In oh, that. Okay. He said okay. the right things, but he was too old. All right. Well, you guys have been looking at my notes because Politico <laughs> has this saying in multiple conversations with key figures in Biden world, both on and off the record, it becomes clear they see the opportunity presented by this unexpected crisis to feature Biden's strengths. Julia. Yeah, absolutely. We know that Biden looks to foreign policy as a strength, having it served as vice president, chair of the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee. However, one issue that I think he faces on this issue of foreign policy, particularly on Israel and Hamas, is the divide within the Democratic Party. And we see a growing divide and also a generational divide, too. You have a lot more establishment Democrats, older Democrats who are more pro-Israel. However, you have younger, more progressive Democrats that tend to be a bit more sympathetic to the Palestinian causes and liberation. Now, on Capitol Hill, we're seeing this play out. Senator John Fetterman, a progressive mm -hmm. from Pennsylvania, swing state, is very much defending Biden. But Rashida Tlaib, uh, the only Palestinian American in Congress from Michigan, a swing state, very much not defending him on this. So I think, uh, you know, th this has some pluses for him, but within his own party, definitely a tricky situation. Well, and Wall Street Journal has this um, very cogent headline saying Biden wanted to end forever wars. But Emily, now he looks like a wartime president. That's right. And they sort of fleshed out his approach to the Ukraine conflict as well as now in Israel. And um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with what you just said and also broadening it out to how it reflects against the American landscape. Think about in this speech on Thursday when he discussed the tremendous package that he now wants support for amongst Americans. And what was interesting, not only the bundling, but also the proportion. So if three quarters of Americans want they support funding for the southern border. They support funding for Israel and only 61 percent support funding for Ukraine. That was totally Totally opposite in the actual package where the majority of the funding would go to Ukraine, humanitarian aid and the like. There's a lot of arguments where people think, well, yes, you have that experience, but you're not drawing on it in the most intelligent, intellectually thoughtful and honest way to benefit what really requires a nuanced commander in chief yeah. approach right now. And he'll and have to do that when this gets to the hill. He's going to have to fight that battle there. That's right. OK, panel, thank you very much. All the expertise.
And no fisticuffs. Uh, we will see you next Sunday. Uh, up next, you've seen the shocking videos of American cities. Attics passed out, empty storefronts abandoned by overwhelmed business owners who've given up trying to stop crime. But what are the solutions? Up next, how Fox News Sunday is digging in for answers. The right age for Neutrogena Red. A quick note, my podcast, Live in the Bream, drops this morning. This week, I sat down with Lee Strobel. We talked about his new book, Is God Real? We talked about his journey from ardent atheist to true believer. And next week on Fox News Sunday, you do not want to miss our special Crime in America. We're going to take you all across the country to see how different communities are handling the spikes in violence, theft, and open-air drug use, and what prosecutors are, and in many cases are not, doing to put a stop to it. We've got experts, including former law enforcement officers, prosecutors, and local officials who are trying to get a handle on things. We're going to be joined by Dallas Mayor Eric Johnson, who made the headlines recently for switching political parties, he says in part because of his frustration with what he's calling liberal policies that are hurting cities like his. It is all next Sunday. Hope you'll join us. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Shannon Bream. Have a great week. We'll see you next Fox News Sunday. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to Fox News Sunday ad-free on Amazon Music with your Prime membership or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.